0: Tonight's cheer will be elaborating about a point which I touched on in this week's podcast. And that is the mysterious troublesome relationship between Rachel and Leah which develops in our parsha. I would title the Sheer saga of sisters, demystifying the troubling epic of Rachel and Leah. The epic of Rachel and Leah is truly troubling. We all feel for the people involved, particularly Rachel. Here, she is destined to marry Yaakov. She is Yaakov's chosen one. And not only does she have to share her husband with her sister Leah, but actually her sister Leah usurps her role, becomes the primary wife, mothering the children which she, Rachel, wished to mother. And the story becomes even more troubling when there's a competition, a rivalry of sorts between Rachel and Leah who is going to be mothering the children? Who's going to be conceiving the children? As we see in the Dudan tale, when these two great Imahos are rendered bargainers over the Dudan, and Leia is selling the Dudan to Rachel to extract the rights of spending another night with Yaakov at the expense of Rachel. Painful, painful episode. As Rachel is rendered here, we would say a loser to her sister in terms of primary role as mother, primary role as wife. And then ultimately, she seems to surrender it all in death when it is Leah, not Rachel, who is buried next to Yaakov and rests with him for eternity. And even more troubling is the fact that Chazal tell us it was Rachel who so graciously enabled Leah, protected Leah from eviction, from being booted out, from being discovered by Yaakov prior to that first night together. Now it's Rachel informed Leah of the Simonim, the code she needed to consummate that marriage. So Rachel was so gracious to Leah, but yet she loses it all to Leah. Troubling, troubling story. So troubling, so gnawing at the heart that I am convinced there must be more to the story beyond the simple human tale of tragedy. Th- this is so gripping, so troubling a story. There's something here of cosmic proportions underlying the story. The fact that the formation of Callias through these had to happen in such a difficult, tense fashion points to some larger, greater phenomena that's at work here. And that is what I would like to discover tonight. Some greater phenomena behind this troubling tale, which will bring together the whole story, which will wrap itself around all of the enigmas and all of the mysteries of the Ruhleleah saga and the saga of their respective children. So I would like to begin with a statement of the Tikhunei Zohar developed by many of the Sifre Kabbal says as follows. Indeed, Rachlan and Le'er are not simply people, but rather they embody two personas of the Jewish people in relationship to Hashem, and really two forms in which the Jewish people elicit bracha from Hashem. Rachel represents a righteous Jewish people when we are virtuous and deserving of merit and Hashem in turn comes forth for us. As we say in Kriyashma, V'hayim shamalat teshma, we listen, we do what we're supposed to, and then v'nasat Geshme chambit. Then we will be prosperous. That's what Rachel is about. What Lay, on the other hand, represents is the notion that even if the Jewish people are not virtuous, Hashem comes through for us, Hashem showers us with bracha for meta rational reasons, for reasons known to Him alone, a love and a commitment and unconditional devotion to the Jewish people, which defies reason. That is what Leia represents. Now, what does the Tikkuni Zohar mean here? What is the connection between these two? issues of how the Jewish people elicit bracha from Hashem. Bracha due to merit or bracha due to Hashem's unconditional connection. What does that have to do with the people, Rachel and Leah, and their story here? How do we take this Kabbalistic teaching and tether it to the pshat? So I would like to suggest as follows. Let's go back to Rachel and Leah and how Each one's respective marriage to Yaakov develops. Rachel is Yaakov's chosen one. Rachel is the one chosen by Yaakov because Yaakov is attracted to her. From the time they meet at the well and Yaakov cries and Yaakov kisses her, Yaakov is drawn to Rachel. She holds something, she carries some sort of attraction to Yaakov. And this point that Rachel, in contrast, to Leah, attracts Yaakov, draws Yaakov, is borne out powerfully by the continuum of our parashat. Because the Chumash describes the business conversation between Lavan and Yaakov, What do you want as wages for working for me as a shepherd? The next pasuk continues, It interrupts this conversation between Lavan and Yaakov. When and asks Yaakov, what do you want as wages for working for me? It interrupts that conversation by describing Rachel and Leah and each one's respective appearance. Leah was teary-eyed. Rachel, on the other hand, was of beautiful countenance. And then the Pesach returns to the conversation and says, Indeed, Vayav Yaakov, as Rachel. Yaakov loved Rachel, and therefore he said, I'm going to work for Rachel. Why does the Torah splice in to the conversation between Lavan and and Yaakov? What should the wages be? And Yaakov's response, I'll work for Rachel. Why does it splice in? Well, Rachel was beautiful. Leah, on the other hand, was teary-eyed. It's clear in a level of pshat, it is explaining what lies behind Yaakov's response when Yaakov is going to tell Lavan, in fact, what I want as my wages is Rachel, that is because Rachel attracts him in a way Leah does not Rachel's yefas tower of yefas mara Leah's Leah Rakos. and certainly this depiction while physical is not simply skin deep as with all jewish attraction the physical is a manifestation of the emotional of the spiritual of the soulful When one is attracted to their bashert, there's an attraction which penetrates beyond the physical to the neshama level. The fact that Rachel is attractive to Yaakov in a way which Leah is not is seen as a soul connection on Yaakov's part. So here we have so clearly a relationship to Rachel based on Yaakov's appreciation of Rachel and what she is. It is therefore Rachel who represents a Jewish people who, who carries merit. A Jewish people who, in their relationship to Hashem, their divine suitor, attracts Hashem, holds spiritual attraction. Hashem loves us because, like Rachel, we are impressive. We are spiritually attractive, Tasha. Attractive, Tasha, in terms of what a divine suitor will be drawn to—mitzvahs, merit, spirituality. But then there is Leah. There is the woman who was unattractive to Yaakov, who does not hold merit, at least marriage. Worthy merit in Yaakov's eyes. She was wanting in Yaakov's eyes Vaini Laerakos. But at the end of the day, somehow, some way, Yaakov married her. And as we see over the course of the story in our parsha, Yaakov learned to love her too. Despite the fact that she did not originally hold merit in his eyes. What does that represent? the Jewish people in relationship to their divine suitor, Hashem, even when we are spiritually unattractive in his eyes, even when we don't hold personal quality worthy in his eyes, somehow, some way, this marriage, this connection happens. In mysterious ways, as we see in the Leia story, it is Hashem pulling the strings, via love and honest trickery and other factors to ensure Leah will marry Yaakov in this most unexpected of ways, in this most unlikely of marriages, where Yaakov wakes up in the next morning and guess who he's married to, this woman who he rejected, and he learns to love her, because there's a notion of relationship which defies the question of does did the candidate originally carry virtue in the suitor's eyes. there's just something larger at work here. That's what Leah is about. She symbolizes a Jewish people who ultimately is bound to Hashem unworthiness notwithstanding. And that and this is and this is a very powerful story now. and Leah and all the human dynamics in this story gives, a human face to this existential issue of when we feel spiritually virtuous, when we have that spiritual poise, when we are rachels of sorts in relationship to Hashem. And yet at other times we are like leis. We are spiritually unmeritorious. We feel wanting. We have a spiritual complex. But nonetheless, we know that ultimately Hashem is married to us, Hashem is connected to us, He's gonna shower brach on us. Because a very powerful, poignant narrative now, seen this way. And now we appreciate all sorts of cabalistic statements. For example, there's another statement of the Zohar, which tells us that Rachel Me Alma Deskalya. Rachel comes from the revealed world. Leia me alma deskasia while Leah comes from the concealed world. What does that mean, Leah's from the concealed world, Rachel's from the revealed world? Well, now we got it. Rachel's from the revealed world, as in the world where everything makes sense. She marries Yaakov because, of course, Yaakov's going to marry her. She holds merit in Yaakov's eyes. That's the revealed world. Hashem loves the Jewish people because we're a Jewish people. We act like our a sudden He knows. But then there's a hidden world, Alma Deskassia of Leah, that for reasons beyond us, certain relationships happen. Yaakov and Leah, ultimately Hashem and a Jewish people, despite unworthiness. And now, actually, we can view the Rachel and the Leah rivalry. A rivalry which begins with them, but continues, of course, with their children. Yosef, the son of Rachel, versus the other brothers, primarily the sons of Leah, we can view this rivalry and competition as much more than a human sibling rivalry, much more than two co-wives, Rachel and Leah. But there's a much greater, more idealistic question at work here, which Rachel and Leah are tussling over. And that is, what will the character of a Jewish people be? Each one of these emos, Rachel and Leia, their role as an aim is to imbue their character within the Jewish people, within the spiritual DNA of this organism called Eknasus Yisrael, which is developing here. Rachel, who represents personal merit, what she is seeking to form within Jewish reality is a Jewish people who earns their way, a Jewish people who acts virtuous and deserves Hashem's love, just as she, so to speak, deserves her husband's love. Lay, on the other hand, is informing in Jewish consciousness the notion even when we're wanting spiritually, as she was wanting in the eyes of her husband. There's Ava shem, it's Leah that somehow, someway happens here. There's unconditional commitment. And the question here of who will be the primary wife? Who will mother the children here? Who will mother more children here? Is much more than two individuals who are selfishly chalila, fighting and competing, but is a question of which ruach will be primary in the Jewish people? Each one ultimately mothers some children, which symbolizes that each one ultimately leaves their mark in the Jewish people. A Jewish people has both qualities. You might call these two qualities tzaddik and balchuva. The Gemara talks about two potential modes of connection to Hashem: the tzaddik, who is inherently virtuous, and the Balchuva, who sins and falls and is unworthy. With the condition of Tshuva, Hashem takes them back unconditionally. So I would suggest these two models in Jewish people, sadak and Baal are viable because we have a rachel and a leia. A rachel is the source of the notion of sadak a leia mothers, mothers in Jewish reality, in the DNA of Knesset Yisrael, the notion of Baal the one who is wanting and yet nonetheless makes it. And this theory, this suggestion of mine, of Rachel and Leah representing Tzadik and Balchuva respectively, is magnificently borne out when we start to study their various children. Both of Leah's children, Yosef and Binyanun, are both clearly tzaddik personas. For starters, Binyamin, her younger son, is the only one of the Shvatzim that the Gemara has never sent. Tzaddik. And of course, her older son Yosef is called by the title tzaddik, Yosef Sadik, because he resists temptations, the temptations of Ashes Petitfer, who seeks to seduce him. In marked contrast, the children of Rachel are called bali Reuven sins when he intervened into Yaakov and Bila's bedroom and he did Shuva Chazal said. Yehuda sinned with Tamar and he did Shuva, He said, Sad kamimani, he took responsibility. Reuven and Yehuda, Leah's children are bali tshuva. Rachel's children, Yosef and Binyamin, are tzaddikim. No coincidence. The, the dots are beginning to connect. These are traits which were bequeathed to them by their mothers the very essence of each mother's respective contribution to Jewish reality. In fact, this contrast between Bnei Lea, Bnei Rachel, Tzaddik, and Palt is perhaps the most marked when the Torah itself pins Yosef against Yehuda in this sense. Because Yosef and Yehuda's respective encounters with the woman who seducts them, Yehuda with Tamar, and Yosef with Ashish Potiphar, in Parashas Vayeshiv, are two juxtaposing narratives placed side by side in the Torah, clearly suggesting a compare-contrast in Parashas Vayeshev. Vayeshev Parak is the story of Yehuda's encounter with Tamar followed by Barathe's Paratelam, which is Yosef's encounter with Asius Potiphar. And the Torah uses the same words. It opens that Yehuda account. Yehuda went down, Yehuda descended, Yehuda had a fall from grace, and then had a moral challenge. And he used the same expression then, Yosef went down. Yosef dissented, and he had his moral challenge. The Torah is seeking to compare the two. And you will find other similarities in those two juxtaposing narratives, such as, in both cases, the garment of the male features prominently. In the Yosef narrative, his garment is tugged at by Asius Potiphar. When he seeks to run away, she pulls at his garment in an effort to suppress him and ultimately... Turn the tables on him and falsify the story. While in Yehuda's story, he designates his robe as the harlot wages. That in one story, Yosef, who's remaining immune in his time of descent, in his time of moral challenge. His garment is forcefully pulled away from him. He never relinquishes his dignity. His dignity is represented by his garb, which clothes him. She pulls it away from him. In the Yehuda story, on the other hand, he trades away his garment to her for her services. He sacrifices his dignity and everything the garment represents in a time of moral fail. Two clearly juxtaposed stories on multiple levels Chazal develop one aspect of this juxtaposition between the two. I think the simplest is the realization. Yosef and Yehuda cope differently with moral challenges. They are tzaddik versus bal Yosef is immune, Yehuda falls, but then does tshuva, that is what each one, that contrast is the whole point of these juxtaposing narratives to bring out these two realities in the Jewish people emerging from the two respective mothers, Rachel and Leah. And like a harmonious symphony, there are so many other notes which come together as he traced the story further between various descendants of Leah and Rachel. And the Sadak and Bal tshuva, Categorization holds true. For example, beyond Yosef and Yehuda, who are, these, who are two kings of Israel of sorts, two kings of the Jewish people of sorts, we have Shaul and David. Shaul, the descendant of Leah, via ben Yaman, followed by David, the descendant of Yehuda and Leah. And the Gemara actually says that Shaul was the greater Tzaddik. Shaul says the Gemara only sinned once. And because he sinned that one time, he lost his kingship. It is so clear that Shal is the tzaddik who barely sins and when he does, he's punished for it and thereby becomes atoned for it, and as the Gemara says, goes straight to Olam David, on the other hand, says the Gemara sins multiple times. Most famously in his failing with Bathsheba, which is a clear deja vu of his ancestor, Yehuda's failing with Tamar. And he does truth in that story. Shaul and David. So the perspective is becoming starker. Pieces are coming together here, where what lay and rachel each one represents, and mothers for their children. Sadiq versus Baal And now we will understand that as Rachel and Leia tussle, each one seeking to assume primary role in a Jewish people. Primary role as a name. I will mother more children than you. No, I will. And let the Dudam become the point of contention. And likewise their children duel for supremacy of Israel. Yosef versus Yehuda. This is much more than a personal fight. Considering the people we're dealing with, they're certainly has to be an ideology at stake here. This is, in fact, an ideological fight. Whose personality will define Israel? What will the Jewish people be? Will we be a Jewish people of tzaddikim? A Jewish people, a Rachel-esque Jewish people, who earn our way to merit through virtue? Or will we be a laitype? A people of tshuva, A people who is not thrown by moral failing? Because we have a confidence, at the end of the day, he will love us anyway, as the Leia story bears out. Both are necessary. And as is true regarding every ideological battle amongst Sadiqim. each respective perspective has merit, but each side must champion their mission, their ideal, and somehow the two balance themselves out. And certainly it is a painful struggle, as every machlokas between tzaddikim is. Painful and there's a human cost. But ultimately we are all the richer because these two personas, the rachol the bnei Rahul bnei leh, each one pushes for supremacy and both become part of who we are. And we have tzaddik and tshuva, both part both part of us and who we are. And now we can take this even further. This understanding that the rochalea tussle has an ideology to it. It's more than a human sibling rivalry, but it's symbolic of this greater cosmic issue. We can begin to address the meaning of some of the pain in the story. Particularly the pain of Rachel. We all feel for Rachel. Rachel is the underdog in the story. She was the princess in the, if we may call it, the Torah, the spiritual Cinderella type of story. And in fact, in her case, her clock actually strikes noon and the coach turns into a pumpkin. She's left with almost nothing. Leah is clearly the winner. Leia mothers almost all the Shvatim. Leia is buried near Yaakov, and Rachel dies on the path for Lorna. In her very last moments, calling even her child, who she births in pain, Benoni, son of my distress, and thus she dies. The tragedy of Rachel, like every tragedy in Torah, like every tragedy in formation of Jewish consciousness must have meaning. Deeper, spiritual, cosmic, ruchelistic meaning. But now we have the to- and now we have the tools to unlock what it is. If Rachel represents tzaddik or midas hadin, earning our way to virtue through merit, Rachel is really the ideal and the idyllic. A Jewish people who behaves and therefore earns. But we know that is largely not what happens. The fall from grace is almost inevitable. The Rachel modality almost never works. The Jewish people aims for a Rachel, but ultimately falls. And the Leah model displaces Rachel. The baal model, for the most part, displaces the Tzaddik. That yes, Rachel has two children who are tzaddikim. There are yechidim, re'isi b'nei aliyah There's a minority of Israel who doesn't sin. But for the most part, we are children of Leah. And the pain which Rachel feels, usurped and displaced by Leah, symbolizes all the pain of the fall from grace. As a Jewish people does not live up to the Rachel. The Rachel model fails us. And we have all the pain, so long as we are living the Rachel model, aspiring for heights which we do not achieve. But then we have the salvation of Aleia, of this new persona, Baal faith in Hashem's unconditional commitment, which saves us and redeems us. This fresh new understanding we've developed tonight of what the Rachel fall from grace. The pain of Rachel is all about. Vis-a-vis Leia. Has a splendid corollary In a well-known statement of Chazal, Known to many of us. The Medrash cited by Rashi in the beginning of Beresh. That betchila ol b'machshavu libaru hatid, Hashem's machshava. Hashem's original plan, so to speak, was to create a world of din, a world where people have to earn their way to merit through virtue. But it didn't work. And in the Olam HaMaisa, in the world of actuality, Midas Harachim and mercy, accepting imperfect people became primary. Well, here we see the mahshava, the dream is for perfection, din, for din, for tzadak, the tzadak modality, earning virtue through merit. But that dream, not actualizing in the world of Misa. Well, this is exactly what is going on through Rachel and Leah. And the correlation is uncanny here. Rachel is Yaakov's wife, exclusive wife, in the Olam Hamachshava, in the world of dream. Yaakov is Machshavah, Yaakov's game plan, is that he's going to marry Rachel alone. This is not simply a flight of Ava on Yaakov's part on a human level but symbolizes that in the game plan, in the realm of Mahshava, of course it's going to be a Rachel model for the Jewish people. That is what he is aspiring to. That's what we aspire to. Rachel's fall from grace and pain and the emergence of Leah reflects that in the Om HaMaisa, in the realm of actuality, it is primarily the world of Rachel and the world of Baal which triumphs. And therefore it is Leah who is the primary mother of and therefore, for all eternity, we are primarily a nation of Leah. The surviving Jewish people are forevermore called Yehudim, from Yehuda, from Leah. Yosef and the Bnei Leah largely fall by the wayside. We're led into Galus, led into exile. The Malchus of Yehuda, of Yosef, I'm sorry, which is the kingdom of the Yasser HaShvatim was largely lost to the Jewish people. We endure as a Leah Mada. These are not just historical phenomena lived by the children and lived by the mothers but symbolic of great spiritual tensions and this ultimate truth that in the Olam Hamais it's Rachman was triumphs in. It is Baal which becomes viable over Tzaddik. And again I stress this is a painful process. There is the original mahshava, the original aspiration for perfection. And when that is not achieved, there's pain. The pain of Rachel, that heartfelt pain, when the princess seemingly, seemingly becomes the loser. And the tugs, the heartstrings pulled, our heartstrings pulled when we read this story, is fully intended. To symbolize this truth and this pain, this pain of imperfection of the Rahalmat, but ultimately the salvation of internal Leia. And now I would suggest we no longer relate to Leia as an outsider, as a foreigner. Chalila unrightfully usurping a position. But we see her on a deeper level as the enduring salvation of Israel, becoming a people of Leah, becoming a people of Tshuva. becoming a people who could survive imperfection, becoming Yehuda. And just to dwell on that a moment, what the name Yehuda represents, both in terms of Yehuda the person and the Jewish people, Jews Yehuda, carrying this Leah model of bracha from Hashem despite our imperfection, Hashem's unconditional devotion to us despite our imperfection. I would like to now explain the naming process of Yehuda and how it represents, how it is representative of Leia's entire persona. The Chumash tells us that when Yehuda was born to Lay as her fourth son, Leah said, ha Hashem. This time, upon the birth of this fourth child, I'm going to thank Hashem. And she called him Yehuda from the word "hoda," thanks. And Chazal make an astounding statement. Chazal say, this was the very first time an individual gave hoda, an individual gave thanksgiving to Hashem. Lay is the very model here of hoda thanksgiving. If you want to know what a thank you is, you turn to Leah. Now, certainly Chazal are not saying a black and white statement that the words "thank you" were never uttered before. It's impossible to believe that the great tzaddikim and Sidkanius who preceded Leah Avram and Sarah were in great tzcholila, did not thank Hashem for all the blessing bestowed upon them. Impossible, of course, they said thank you. But what it means is conceptually the true meaning of Huta, some deeper idea of Hoda in terms of what Hoda ought to be, was introduced to the world through Leia. Relative to Leia's Hodah, there never was Hoda before. Hoda, Leia captures the deeper meaning of Hoda in this story. And I would like to understand what is the deeper meaning of Leia's Hodah, and on a deeper level, why it is Leia, especially considering the grand Leia persona we've, which we've developed tonight. Why it is specifically Leia. Who introduces true Hoda to the Jewish people? And let's take a step back here a minute and the, we'll see how the pieces all come together. Many Svarim point out that the word Hoda, thank you, from the root word moda, admit or confess as in Vidoi, describes a subordinate position. You admit, you confess from the subordinate position. I confet, one confesses that they wrong someone else or one admits that they need to own up to something, responsibility, and a hoda, thank you, is that as well. There is a subordination, an admission, that I need someone else. The person who provided for me, I need them. I am not self-sufficient, I need them. I couldn't have done this myself. A hoda is much more than a perfunctory thank you of Sanyash Kayak, thanks, it is making the pa- it is powerfully affirming. I need you. I couldn't have done this myself. Which explains the deeper meaning of Rashi to the passage concerning Yehuda. Why Leith gave Huda specifically over the birth of Yehuda? Rashi makes a mathematical chashbin, a mathematical equation. There are twelve shvatim and four wives wa- destined to be born, and four wives destined to mother them, four mothers destined to mother them. Rachaleah. So each mother ought to mother three. Here, Leah is mothering the fourth child, Yehuda. She's receiving more than her portion, and that's why she gets Hoda. Now, generally, this Rashi is understood superficial. As an additive, an extra basis to thank Hashem is when you receive even more than your portion. But now, in light of our new definition of Hoda, Hoda as an affirmation, I didn't do this myself, it's all from Hashem. We understand how Yosem Michelki receiving more than one's portion, this fourth child, captures the essence of Huda. Huda is all about, this is not my chelak. This blessing is not due to my portion, it's not due to my merit. It's all undeserved and it's all from Hashem. And I would posit that while it is the fourth child who inspires this realization, Ultimately, Leah looks back at all of life now and realizes, it's Yosr Michalki, I don't really deserve anything, I could give Hoda. Eina magili klum, I really deserve nothing. And we all have these Leia moments in life when it is so clear. We are receiving blessing beyond what we could have imagined, beyond what we feel deserving of, and we really look back at the totality of our lives and realize it is all Yosr Michalki. Why is this expression of Hoda and Leia's part Relevant to our shir tonight, and for that matter, relevance to the Leia persona. Because now we have a major epiphany. Why it is particularly Leia who comes to this understanding called Huda, called I am undeserving, you gave it to me, Hashem. Because we studied the entire mission of Leia, The entire persona of Leia is, I am undeserving. She represents to the Jewish people that even when we are undeserving, we receive blessing and grace from Hashem. Leah lives this in her whole experience. Huh. She is the unlikely wife. She is the wife who left to her own devices. She would have never ended up Yaakov's wife. She doesn't hold the marriage, It doesn't hold them. in her mind, certainly, and in Yaakov's mind, what it takes to become Yaakov's wife. But she becomes the wife anyway. She knows her station in life now, her station as one of the most is certainly Yosem Michelki, could be attributed be to only Hashem. So it is Racha, Leia, Leah, and particularly Leia, who teaches the Jewish people how to give hotah, how to say Hashem. We realize our limitations. We realize your bracha is not due to what we deserved. We would fall far fall far short if it was simply a Rachel model, if it was simply a Din model. Like Leia Hashem, we say. You know, we have all sorts of scars on our face, so to speak. We, we have our own tearied out eyes, Enei Leia Rakos. We are so undeserving. But Hashem, just as the matriarch of old, you come through for us. You love us. You are a divine suitor, our divine Yaakov. Love us nonetheless, so we give huta. So I am feeling that magical richness when disparate, seemingly disparate threads in Torah coalesce and weave together as a cohesive tapestry. The Leia Ruchel story and all of its troubling tension. The Leia persona, which now becomes primary in who the Jewish people are, who the Yehudim are, Yehudim, who give thanksgiving and admission it is from you, Ham alone, as taught by Leia of old, the primary aim of the Jewish people. Now having done Leia justice hopefully, developing her role as the primary aim of the Jewish people, the aim of the Balchuva, the Balchuva persona in the Jewish people, which defines us. We now can't neglect Rachel because while Rachel's contribution is less numerical, certainly less children, certainly she must retreat from center stage in the story so painfully. Conceptually, she is one of the most and her contribution is no less. Rachel's idea of the tzaddik is no less important. Because while we largely fall short from that dream, we need the dream. We need to aspire to perfection, even though we'll only get so far. And if we were only a people of Leia, perhaps we would accept mediocrity or even less than mediocrity. We aspire to spiritual beauty, to Yafas Torah, Yafas Mara, And we come however close we could come, though most of us are not B'nai Rachel, Yosef, and B'nyamets. We need that model in the Jewish people. As we saw in that masterful correlation between Rachel and Leah to the Chazal of Hashem's, Hashem's original plan to create the world within, and then in Maiset, introducing Rachel in mean the world of actuality. Hashem's machshavah, Hashem's plan, represents an ideal which needs to be there. It is by master design that Yaakov too had to be aspiring towards a Rachel. That sets the bar of what a Jewish people is about. Rachel sets that bar as much as Leah represents in the Om HaMaisa a truth which has to endure, the realm of Belchiv. In a similar vein, there is a well-known explanation of the Shla and many other tzaddikim. In explanation of a Gemara, if we will go on a tangent for a minute, an explanation of a Gemara about Rabbi Akiva. When the Gemara speaks of a vision of Rabbi Akiva dying, a horrific death, combed with combs of flesh, the Romans martyr him that way. And the malachim themselves, the angels, no less than the angels, say, "What's going on?" Zutor vezuchara, Hashem, how could you let this happen? And Hashem responds to the malachim, responds to the tragedy of Rabbi Akiva with the enigmatic statement, "Kachol Machshava. This is my machshava. That things like that should happen. This is my thought. What does "Kachol Machshava? This is my thought. Mean explains the shla, brilliantly. Hashem is referencing that original machshava. That original thought game plan that there should be a world of Din, a world of judgment. That while most of us, the Olam HaMaisa, the actuality of a Jewish people as a whole, of a humanity as a whole, requires a lowering of the bar, a realm of Rachaman. Great Sadiqim like Rabbi Akiva, they live in the realm of Din, they live in the realm of perfection, they live in the realm where every action carries such weight where any indiscretion will come with horrific punishment because ultimately every mitzvah will come with full reward. It's a realm of din. It's a realm of true justice. While using this explanation of the suffering of Rabbi Akiva, the suffering of the tzaddikim, the tzaddikim actually suffer at times worse than anyone else, ironically, Tzaddik Viralo, that issue which has plagued mankind's consciousness. Well, one issue here is specifically that tzaddik is living in the realm of Din, the realm of judgment, the realm of perfection. And therefore, there's that heightened judgment. Well, this provides yet another, this opens yet another window into understanding Rachel and the tragedy of Rachel's condition. Rachel suffers so Rachel's fall from grace is not a fall from grace in vain at all. It's not a suffering in vain, God forbid, at all. Because Rachel is the creature of Din, the creature of tzaddik, the creature of perfection, she suffers because those who are living in the realm of Din will suffer for whatever imperfections they have. The suffering is actually an affirmation that the person is living a life of Perfection. And the ultimate bracha which they received will be no less earned, will be meted out with no less justice and authenticity. Well, as with every Torah true revelation, the perspective now just broadens. Our new understanding of the pain of racha, how the pain of racha is actually, is actually affirming Rachel's personality Rachel's greatness, the personality of Tzaddik, the personality of Midas Hadid, we will now appreciate how so often it is Rachel's descendants who suffer so, not despite their mer- righteousness, but due to their mer- merit. For example, we mentioned before Shaul. Shul was the more righteous king than Tafin. And yet, due to his few sins, or even one sin, his kingdom was cut short. And he was therefore by-purged and immediately entered all in it says. And there you have David, on the other hand, Leah's descendant, who is sinning and sinning and sinning and always taken back. And it seems so unfair, but the answer is Shaul. As a descendant of Leia. his model, his modus operandi is dinist, sadik. There are no freebies. Everything needs to be earned and there will be suffering and pain, but ultimately blessing and a blessing of perfection, a blessing of authenticity rather than freebies. And just like Rachel is the original wife, but then as a fall from grace because in the realm of Machshav, and the realm of original plan, it is Din, but then Rachamim, which says. So too in the Shal David story, a Jewish people begins with a shul, begins with the dream, the aspiration to perfection, Sidkus, what Shal represents. But ultimately that proves non-enduring, not sustainable. The malchus of Shal fails. David's malchus, which represents tshuva, accepting of imperfection, as David's own life brings out, that is what endures. But just like the world, which has to begin with a vision of Din, and Yaakov's household, which had to begin with a rachel vision of Din, and then a pain, painful fall. The same thing is true of the malchus of the Jewish people. Shul, followed by David and Shul, who falls from grace in, a, in an intense re- retribution of Midas Haddin, but ultimately a shawl who reaches perfection, though his model for the Jewish people is not the enduring one, it is David. And the great pattern continues to achrus hayyam to the end of days. Because just like we have Rachel and Leah and Yosef and Yehudah and Shul and David, in the great spiral cycles of Jewish history as a pattern, a A cycle, a circuitous pattern of spiral staircases through the ages. In Achras Hayavim, in the end of days, these same two emerge. You have Mashiach Ben Yosef, the descendant of Leah, who is the upstart king, who is the first savior of Israel. But he's ultimately killed, and he ultimately suffers for whatever small indiscretions he commits or whatever small failings the Jewish people have. And ultimately, after the Midas Hadin cuts short the savior of Din, the savior who has aspired to perfection, Mashiach ben Yosef. What endures is Mashiach ben David, the descendant of Yehuda and the descendant of Leah. An enduring kingdom for, of Israel through the model of Leah, which is, despite our imperfections, Hashem loves us anyway. And that's enduring, but we can't achieve the world of, of enduring Geulah, the world of Leah, without the olah b'machshava, without the aspiration to perfection represented by a Rahul, represented by a shal represented by a mashiach, Ben Yosef, who all begin this great cycle and aspiration. Now this understanding that while we are largely Yehuda, we are largely B'nai Le'a, But there is, at the times, there is a small element of Israel, a minority, Reisi B'nai Aliyah V'Hemolatah, who are B'nai Racha. Tzadikim has another implication as well, which will open up a final dimension to the Rachel and leia dynamic, to the enigma of these two mothers and these two elements of Jewish peoplehood. Rachel is the aim of Gullus, the mother of Gullus. Not only does she suffer personally in a Gullus of sorts, as she retreats from the position of prominence as primary wife and seems to be sidelined. But it is so clear that she is modeling this for the future of the Jewish people and serving as their guiding in Gullus. when in death, she is the one who wails on their behalf as they are led into Gullus past her burial place. And in the same vein, it is her descendants who are the leaders in Gullus, whether Yosef, who is the Malach in Mitzrayim, in Gaulus Mitzrayim, whether it is Mordechai and Esther, who are our leaders in Gullus, it is only when we're at a time of Geulah, when we're back in Eretz Yisrael, that Yehuda becomes the Malach again. Well, this is not a coincidence. Rachel is the mother of Gullus. Rachel is, and her children lead the Jewish people in times of Gallas. Why? Well, the key is to understand. That Rachel symbolizes perfection. Rachel symbolizes the ability to cope with Midas Hadin. When even Hashem's exacting rigors of judgment can be satisfied to a degree. We can live up to it. And this is exactly what we need when we're in Golis. Because the Golis is a time of panim, of divine concealment. The Golis is a time when Hashem says... I am seemingly not giving you those freebies anymore. It's not open grace anymore. It's not open Kilei It's not that realm of lay anymore. That's not the way I'm operating right now. For reasons known to Hashem alone, Hashem determines he's concealing his face. He's behaving towards us with Midas Adin. So in such times, to who do we turn? We turn to Leia. We turn to the leadership of B'nai Leia. When Hashem is Kivayachal demanding, we're in Golis we rise to the challenge by seeking an ever more perfect, an ever more rigorous standard of personal behavior to measure up to the scruples of Din. And that is why in times of Din, Rachel is the model, Rachel is the aim. But ultimately in the enduring world of Geula, the model is Leah, the model is Yehuda. The model is Hashem who embraces us and raises us high despite imperfection. So here we have a cohesive tapestry we've woven together, a whole new way of looking at so many things from an entirely new, I would dare call it revolutionary, a breathtaking new perspective. But the power of our presentation tonight lies in the cohesiveness, lies in the unity of this presentation, how the pieces come together, beginning with that original Tikkuni Zohar we developed, how Rachel and Leah represent Sadak and Baal Tshuva, and how this is borne out in the two respective stories. And hopefully we're beginning to see how the most enigmatic, troubling stories in the Torah, Rachel and her fall from grace, the way she is usurped, it is specifically these most troubling stories which contain within them the great secrets, the great existential secrets to who we are as a people. Tzaddik, Baal highest spiritual aspirations versus the, the inevitable realities and the way the two come together and the way we need both. And now we have ever greater appreciation for both Rachel Alehyeh. The saga of sisters we have indeed on one level demystified this most tragic of epics. Now with a vision of triumph of where a Jewish people is headed. Thank you very much.